This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot BioProven. Get what you paid for. The nitrogen that stays put, whether or not. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. There are many economic factors at play in the ag industry. Stimulus money and higher commodity prices have infused cash into farms and banks over the past 12 months. Interest rates are historically low, and inflation is, at the moment, on the rise for some inputs. How are these factors impacting farms and banks, and what will be the outcome? It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, and it's brought to you by Pivot BioProven. In 2020, I had the chance to use a new corn nitrogen product firsthand in my fields, Pivot BioProven. Pivot BioProven adheres to the root of the corn plant, creating a mutually beneficial nitrogen-generating partnership that stays strong all the way through harvest. It's the weather-resistant and sustainable way to achieve more predictable, more productive yields than ever before. After a successful trial run in 2020, I already have our new and expanded trial up and running in 2021. I hope you'll follow me as I check the progress on what Pivot BioProven can do in my fields and yours. If you're like me and want to make sure your corn has the nitrogen it needs, whether or not, then check out Pivot BioProven. It'll change the way you think about nitrogen. You can learn more at pivotbio.com. Farmers and banks sit at a unique juncture as we hopefully move out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Interest rates remain low, and that makes major farm purchases more attractive, especially given the cash influx of stimulus money that went to farms and other individuals and businesses in the country over the last 12 months. Pent-up buying demand, and in some cases, a short supply of raw materials, has led to higher prices for some goods. In several cases, banks that lend to farmers have found less need for loans and they sit on more cash than they did a year and a half ago. What does all of this mean for farmers and banks and what might the future hold from here? Joe Caffey joins me once again on Farming the Countryside as we discuss what he sees locally and nationally. Joe Caffey is my guest. Joe is at First State Bank in Middlebury, Indiana, although I know they have several locations in that part of the state, uh, big in ag lending, plus uh, all other community needs that they may have there. Joe has been a guest here before. Joe, thank you for joining me and perhaps just begin by refreshing us on where you're located in the state and kind of what your bank does uh, there working with farmers. We're, we work in the northern tier counties in Indiana, so we border the Michigan state line and uh, about a $700 million community bank taking care of agricultural and commercial as well as homeowner borrowing and deposit needs up here. The last time I checked in with you, we were just kind of into the COVID era, if you will. PPP loans were just starting. I think you were starting to do quite a few of those. Kind of look back, I suspect that PPP loans were a big portion of what you did with a lot of farmers, plus other business owners, but how big of an impact was that for a lot of your customers this past year? So in round one, we ended up booking about 400 PPP loans, totaling $60 million in, in, in loan totals. And, and that's, a, that's a good year oftentimes for a bank of our size. 
Uh, and we did that, and, and the bulk of that was in about 11 days early in the pandemic process that we were working around the clock to get those taken care of. And by our estimates there in round one, we preserved about 7,000 jobs in these rural communities in northern Indiana. So we're, we're sort of proud of that. Um, if we fast forward to today, about a year later, we're down. We've got all, all of those forgiven from round one with the exception of a few stragglers, folks working to get their final information in, probably totaling four or five million dollars. Uh, and then in round two, the demand was, was much lighter and uh, we totaled about 30 uh, percent of what we did in round one and round two of PPP. And that's actually when probably more farmers came to the table because of some of the changed regulations and rules of how to apply and qualify. And so we helped uh, a bigger share of farmers there in round two than in round one. Right. You mentioned about how much work you had to do, and that's something I hear from banks all the time. I mean, community banks really stepped forward, but I bet you had people there, you kind of said round the clock, but that might not be joking. I mean, you had a lot of work to get, um, a lot of stuff to push through in one time, correct? We really did. We worked 12 straight days, and you know, people joke about bankers' hours. <laughs> uh, we were in there on Sunday afternoons after church and, and doing what we needed to to take care of of the community and there were a lot of early mornings and a lot of late nights uh, but uh, it's what community banks are chartered to do and, and we felt like it was important to take care of the folks who needed help the most one of the things i want to get into is kind of looking at the overall ag lending landscape but i'd be interested in your thoughts on how ppp affected the banks themselves because you wrote these loans and so the banks were able to capture some of the, that money for themselves in a market in which interest rates are lower and the Fed says we aren't lend, lending as much money to, as far as ag operating loans. So how critical were PPP loans just to banks, community banks and ag lenders themselves? Well, there's no question that uh, PPP loans uh, really changed the way we look at our balance sheet, you know, to put on $60 million of loans in, in uh, let's say two months there uh, during the beginning of the pandemic, we were scrambling to figure out what that meant. Some of the things maybe we, we didn't necessarily plan for was a lot of the early participants in PPP, the, the farmers or, or the companies weren't sure if they need the money or not. So they parked that money in a checking or savings account and there it sat, or they took that money and paid off their farm operating line of credit or their business operating line of credit. And so while, while, PPP loans went up, our core earning assets actually dropped in the bank or a more traditional lending, and then we became very cash rich. If you put in all the PPP funds that sat in bank accounts, coupled with all the stimulus money coming into consumer accounts, um, we've just been sitting on a pile of cash like most of the banking industry has for the better part of last year and now into uh, May of this year. You know, that's something that I hear, and certainly I think the Fed came out and said that ag lending for operating loans down 10 percent. What right. then does that mean when we have banks, in a sense, setting on a lot of cash? I think most of us say, well, that's good. You want to set on cash, but a bank wants to lend that money out. So give me the overall landscape then. How do banks look at this right now? Because many of them are deposit rich right now, and they would love to lend some more money. But Ag lending, at least for operating loans, is is down because many of those farms have done pretty well over the last year once we got the stimulus money through and, and now rising commodity prices. 
Yeah, I think the Fed estimates that, you know, last year's farm income, about 40 to 45 percent of that actually came from stimulus. And as you alluded to, a lot of that's still sitting in our banks in the form of cash or paid down operating lines of credit. And so as we as we look at the landscape, uh, number one, banks and financial institutions are getting more and more competitive for the very best credits because we're all sitting on a pile of cash. Banks' alternatives to go invest those funds um, are, aren't aren't as rewarding or have the upside potential that a loan does. And so we look to the bond market oftentimes, either mortgage-backed securities or, or public-issued bonds, where the return has been much lower. And uh, we've had to invest quite a bit of cash in the bond market because simply the loan demand has not been there. Uh, to eat up some of that cash. Our job is to get that cash out and working and earn a margin on that so we can keep the lights on, keep our people paid, and keep investing in our community. So it's certainly been a challenge to manage the balance sheet through all that. I know even at First State Bank, where, where I work, we have increased our investment portfolio probably 35 or 40 percent since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, just because that was the easiest and best place to park some cash for us. You've been in banking quite a while now, especially on the ag side. Have you really ever seen a time like this in which you had the deposits like this and were really competing this hard to get out there and, and get these ag loans made? Because as you mentioned, uh, there is a lot of competition right now. There is a great deal of competition. Rates are low. Um, and we see some of our competitors, especially some of the government-sponsored organizations um, or alternative financing companies and bigger banks, loosening their credit standards because they want loans. Um, we, we don't, we're not in that business. We want to maintain our credit standards and our good ratings with our examiners along the way. Credit quality still drives the bus for us. Um, so credit standards have, have certainly loosened along the way because of that. And, and frankly, no, I have not worked in a situation where we've been this cash rich um, with limited opportunities to go out there and make loans simply because if we're cash rich, most of our customers are as well. And it's cheaper to use their money than our money. Right. You know, I'd be interested in your perspective. And I'm hearing this just kind of in the countryside from different folks I visit with that you mentioned some of these larger banks and maybe larger entities that perhaps don't do a lot of ag lending or haven't in the past. They are wanting to get that money out there and use it somehow. They've come in with some pretty low rates. Are there any opportunities or challenges you would want ag producers to be aware of? Because some of those rates can be pretty attractive from some lenders that perhaps don't always do ag loans. What should we be thinking about when we're approached with some of those opportunities? I think there's really two things to be aware of. Number one, um, does that institution have the cultural experience to work with farm operators, livestock, and grain, grain producers? Because, you know, I think it's important that from the teller to the person who answers the phone to your loan officer to the bank president understands ag lending um, because it's just different. You know, we, we joke a lot in, in our bank. I can teach anyone to be a banker, but I can't teach anyone agriculture. You have to grow up with some hay seeds on your in your shoes. And and I know my first first question when I interviewed to be a banker uh, way back when was, um, "How's your grandpa doing?" And the second was, "You've bailed a lot of hay in your day, right?" And uh, that, that was important for the culture. And, and I think that's critical. And then I, I think the second thing to be aware of is make sure you're reading the fine print because what happens. 
is some of these uh, alternative finance companies or the bigger banks who maybe don't have the breadth and depth of knowledge in the agricultural industry will, will really try to force um, ag loans onto commercial loan documentation. And, and quite honestly, sometimes commercial loans uh, for a manufacturing concern or a service organization are quite different than what they may need to be for a farmer. A good example of that is there may be some balloon features in there or some rate escalation features uh, that, that we, we may or may not be experienced with coming from a farm background. So reading that documentation very carefully and understanding what you're signing becomes very important when, when transitioning to a different lender. In these times, even if it's not being approached by somebody else, perhaps it's just looking at my own loan. I know that you probably don't <laughs> love folks coming back and wanting the rates lowered. <laughs> that means not as much margin sure. for you, but hey, it's happening. So what types of things should I be thinking about with my own current ag loan, whether it's operating loan or maybe some longer term uh, money I have out there on land that I've uh, purchased? Sure. I think it's a great time to do that. And if you have not talked to your ag lender um, in the last even three or four months, you need to be doing that and just take a look at where the market is and what it demands at this point in time. Uh, there are very likely opportunities for, for some rate reductions, uh, possibly some more favorable terms. Um, we're, we're seeing in the industry as a whole as those credit standards loosen up some, some banks willing to lock in uh, some fixed rates for a little longer period of time maybe than in the past, especially um, on a land loan with excellent loan to value and, and good credit backing that. You mentioned the land. So what are you seeing there? I know you're in a, in a place where land values can certainly be higher than some other places. And I suspect over the last year, they've continued to climb higher. What are you seeing? That, that's exactly right. We have seen an increase um, in land values in this part of the world. And it's driven by a couple things. Um, one, right now, there's honestly some optimism with commodity prices appearing to be higher as we're into planting, well into planting season. Crops are coming up and they're off to a good start. So there's some optimism from the ag side. We're heavily influenced by the recreational vehicle manufacturing industry. 80% of all the RVs in the world are manufactured in the county I'm sitting in right now. And so they keep having a large demand for land as well to, uh, to build factories, manufacturing facilities, and then they also have these large parking lots where they park finished or nearly finished units um, awaiting delivery. And so that keeps our land price pretty high. And then I would even hate to speculate what it is today because you hear some wild numbers up here. Um, but uh, nonetheless, we probably have seen that 10, 12% increase in the last 12 months in the agricultural land value. So does that mean that you're loaning more land or more money for ag land right now while operating loans maybe not as much? Is the amount going out for land purchases going up? There are some opportunities on that side of things, but at the same time, um, we're seeing maybe larger down payments than in the past as uh, folks have a little more cash on the balance sheet. They're leveraging that into some longer term assets. Um, you know, a bank is never opposed to our customers having more more liquidity uh, into a project like that. And so um, we, there are some opportunities that we've taken advantage of on that side of things. But at the same time, it's been relatively flat. I'm interested in your thoughts about land prices. I think right now we would say the, you hear people say, well, they're high. Land prices are high. But we have not seen for quite a while a time in which land prices have truly backed up. Maybe the rate of growth has slowed down. So how should I look about perhaps going out there and purchasing land? You know, 
I lived through the 80s. <laughs> I was pretty young, yeah. but I do remember that. So what would you have as a suggestion for folks out there that are perhaps looking to expand operations or acquire land in a market in which those rates or those prices have certainly increased more in the last year or so than uh, maybe the rate has been previously? I think if you have a good base of land that is paid for or nearly paid for, I still think there are opportunities uh, to go out and purchase farms and, uh, and be able to pay for them. The ones that we get real concerned about are the folks who are who are highly leveraged and uh, maybe maybe did not live through the 80s. And, you know, you and I are similar vintage. And what I remember about the 80s are some pretty thin Christmases in December. Um, it was a scary time in agriculture. Uh, are we there? No. Uh, this rate of inflation that we're having uh, appears that the nation is in at the moment concerns me a little bit and how that's going to affect real estate in general going forwards. But as long as you've got that strong base of land ownership, um, I think there are opportunities out there. I just would encourage everyone to, to proceed with your eyes wide open. You mentioned thin Christmases. I remember the Christmas back there where my parents said, we will either get a VCR for the family or you can have a little bit more for yourself for Christmas. <laughs> and we chose that the VCR. Funny. That's, that's <laughs> funny now. I mean, what could you, well, VCRs you aren't going to use, but I mean, what did VCRs get down to in price? But still, that was the big exactly. decision. Get a VCR for Christmas or not. <laughs> Perfect example. Perfect. Yeah. Well, you know, thinking back to those times though, Joe, I hope that we don't go back to times like that, but, we certainly have to live with an eye open to these markets can change and change quickly. So what advice would you have for us to, as folks in agriculture, we've got to build a business, but also we've got to make that business strong for tougher sure. times that may come. So any advice on what I should be thinking about it in a market in which we think <laughs> things look great and Hey, I hope they continue great, but things are going to change someday probably. So how do we make sure that we're ready for any storms coming? I believe I've said this on this podcast in, in episodes prior to this one, know your break-even cost of production. And, and once that commodity price, whatever it is you're raising or growing, hits that break-even cost of production, really strongly considering start selling, start pricing that commodity at that point in time. Uh, my grandfather always used to like to say, I, I never knew someone that went broke by making a profit. And whether you're in banking or agriculture, that is true. And so if we can sort of use a baseball analogy and hit singles all the way up and not wait for the home run, um, those are the producers that in my banking career I've seen be very successful year after year, continue to build equity, have that down payment for the next farm and use their operating lines appropriately. So that, that's my number one piece of advice is, is understand and know that break-even cost of production. And when it hits that, let's start considering a sale. So you're telling me if I sold beans at $10 instead of 16 but I still made a profit, don't feel too bad. <laughs> it's better than selling them at six. Is that the advice? That, yeah, that's exactly right. Sell some at 10 and, and maybe hold on to a percent of your crop hoping for the 16 um, because that's fun. And it, it's fun to say at Thanksgiving to all the other farmers around the table how much you sold your crop for. Um, but uh, yeah, if we can hit that profit and, and remain profitable, man, that is that is key for the longevity of the operation. 
Joe, before we run out of time, I know that it's hard to make predictions and certainly who could have predicted some of what we've been through in the last year and a half or so. But any thoughts on where we may go with interest rates? Certainly, we're living in a time in which some prices have inflated. Now, we could debate about the exact causes of that. Certainly, COVID's played into this. But where do you think we're headed with with rates over the next year? And, and how can that impact agriculture going forward? You know, following the Fed meeting uh, last week, early this week, it appears um, that most of the, the Board of Governors are still thinking we're going to be in this this low interest rate environment probably sometime into 2023. Um, now, you know, a few years ago, they said we'd still be in it in 2021, and here we are. So they sort of keep extending out that, that back end of it, if you will. Um, so I think low interest rates are here for us to uh, either enjoy or despise, depending on which side of the equation you're on. Uh, but for producers, manufacturers, and, and other people, it, it is certainly an opportunity to lock in some some lower-term money at this point in time, and I think it's going to be here for a, for a while. The the prices that have gone up, certainly some of the raw materials, lumber, and then we see it on uh, certainly commodities, corn, beans, and so forth. Do you think that that is short-lived? Is that mostly a product of we're coming out of COVID now money – is going to be spent and people can do it more readily or is it something that you see happening longer term do you think well that that's a million dollar literally question for for a lot of people is how long will that last um, if you look out in some of the lumber futures they are backing off a little bit um, we don't see that at the local hardware store or lumber yard at this point in time uh, so whether that holds true i, I don't know but uh it sure hasn't slowed down people building houses or making farm improvements or, or building a chicken barn or, or what have you. Um, there's still a lot of activity going on out there, especially in this part of the world. Contractors are hard to find and materials are harder. What are the things that are on Joe Caffey's mind as the head of a, a an ag lending bank or a set of banks there in northern Indiana that does a lot? Of what's keeping you awake at night or what perhaps is making you smile during the day as we we move here into the middle of this uh, this year 2021? Well, you know, I think some of the concerns um, are consolidation in our industry. Uh, a lot of the, the, the smaller community banks are, are being gobbled up by, by larger institutions along the way as they, they look towards an uncertain future uh, in finance and the, the ever-changing tax laws with a new administration coming on. And so um, Indiana's had a dearth of, of those consolidations taking place. And First State Bank's not on that list. We're looking to grow and expand. Um, in fact, we're almost finished building a brand new additional office in South Bend, Indiana that we expect to come online here in July. So those are also things that make me smile as an opportunity for the community banks who are who are safe and stable and, and able to keep making those loans and go out there and grow. And, and it's been a very profitable year um, for banks who are doing things the right way. And so th those things make me smile as well. Do you think that some of that within the banking industry has been accelerated because of possible tax and estate laws changing this year? Is that driving some of this or is it started earlier and it's just more the ag lending landscape and it becomes tougher for smaller banks just to be able to keep up with all of the back end type of stuff that has to, to, to occur. What, what has been driving some of that consolidation? Do you think? Uh, there was certainly a pause during the COVID pandemic. A lot of the larger banks were preserving capital. Um, a lot of the acquirers were sitting back waiting to see what would happen. And so as, as we sense that we may be coming to an end on, on some of these things, 
I think that that pause is, is ending, and so they're back out there looking to make appropriate acquisitions that make sense for, for a geographic footprint or diversify portfolios or what have you. And then the second part of all that is exactly what you alluded to, um, the continued uh, just compliance efforts and backroom efforts that, that all banks, whether they're, they're small with one location on Main Street to a national bank, we all have to play by a very, very similar set of rules and, and it's costly to do so. And so figuring how to do that efficiently and uh, staying out of compliance jail is a big reason that a lot of banks face fatigue and, and uncertainty and, and ultimately decide to sell. Joe, I always appreciate the time. I always learn something by visiting with you and hope that uh, not only your bank, but all those that you bank with and the farmers out there do well and have have a good season out there. Hey, we appreciate it. Like I said before, the crops are coming up. We could use a little rain like other parts of the country, but uh, things uh, were very optimistic here. Certainly interesting times for farmers and banks, and Joe does a nice job of explaining what he sees in his area, but also bringing the larger perspective as well. On our farm, we have been through an extended cool and wet spell, but it appears we are moving into a warmer trend. We are still working to get the last of our soybeans planted. I hear a wide range of reports. Some still have seeds to plant or may need to replant, while others are already experiencing dry conditions. Wherever you may be, I hope you get the weather you need as we move into the heart of the summer. I appreciate you joining us, either on your local radio station or via the podcast. Remember to follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook or catch updates by following me on platforms like LinkedIn or Twitter as well. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bioproven. Get what you paid for, the nitrogen that stays put, whether or not. Learn more at pivotbio.com.